Hello and welcome to the Curator on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week there is a certain type of innocence or obliviousness that Americans lived under that it couldn't happen here and now it has happened here. A year on from the Capitol riot, we reflect on the aftermath of that day's events and how it could continue to shape the US political landscape. Plus, British visual artist Chantelle Martin gives us some insight into her process. I now have a track record of when I do a project, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, so if a brand says, well, we need to see what you're going to do beforehand or can you add these elements to it? If it's that type of project, I just say it's not for me and that's okay. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippi. As we look back on the week that was, it's time to hand over to Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller to recap what we know now that we didn't seven days ago. Here is Andrew with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week that at least on early form, 2022 may not be the year during which humanity decides as a species that perhaps it should get somewhat less performatively agitated about absolute bullshit. We are indebted for this lesson to France, although any excuse really to play France's national anthem, magisterial banger that it is. Hang on, here's the good bit. Anyway, we learned that France had chosen to see in the new year by having an immense and ridiculous row about a flag. A row so immense in its ridiculousness indeed that we feel heartily justified in wheeling out that deeply puerile chorus of stereotypical Gallic indignation that we threw together a while back for reasons which, if we're honest, we no longer recall. Might just have been a slow afternoon. That's the one. The cause of the fracas verging on an outright stramash was as follows. As 2021 drew to an unlamented close, the flag hoisted over the Arc de Triomphe in Paris was not, as it usually is, the red, white and blue of France, but the gold stars on blue of the European Union. We learned, when we looked somewhat wearily into this, that this was by way of announcing the beginning of France's turn to have a lash at the rotating presidency of the EU Council. Within this six-month term, however, falls France's presidential election, and some of those opposed to President Emmanuel Macron extending his stay in the LSE Palace chose to affect umbrage at this apparent treachery. Yes, it really was as silly and as boring as that. Can we get a mashup which somehow suggests La Marseillaise fighting it out with that bit from Beethoven's Ninth that the EU advertises itself with? (laughs) 
We could, at this point, faithfully relay the anguished vituperations of Eric Zamor, Marine Le Pen and Valérie Pacres, maybe even get some of our staff to voice them in mocking fashion, as we often do to tremendous comic effect, or we could just play that thing again. And then recite a complete, comprehensive, alphabetical roll call of every sane French citizen who actually genuinely cares about any of this. Moving seamlessly along on the subject of things no sane person actually genuinely cares about, we learned that at least one member of the former first family of the United States isn't waiting around to see if Donald Trump is serious about launching another waddle towards the White House. We learned that former First Lady Melania Trump is keen to cash in sooner rather than later, possibly, who knows, in anticipation of that GRU extraction squad finally coming to recover their prime clandestine operative. Hey, well, all right, sir, here we go there, and what are we going to give for? I'm at 25, I'm to get 30 now, 500, bid to 5, and a 40 now, 500, bid to 5, and a 50, and all of them behind me. We learned that Lieutenant Colonel Knaus, sorry, Ms. Trump, is flogging off to the highest bidder a surplus item from her wardrobe, specifically the hat she wore when President Emmanuel Macron of France, who appears to be this week's recurring motif, visited Washington, D.C. in 2018. We learned that you, yes, you, can own the, it says here, white, broad-brimmed, high-blocked crown hat designed by Herve Pierre. The bad news is that the bidding starts at (laughs) $250,000. Settle down. But the good news is that the payment is being taken in a cryptocurrency called Sol, so you might end up getting it for the price of a mid-range bar of soap. We did learn, however, that cheaper options are available, including a watercolour of Miss Trump wearing the hat, or a vaguely animated non-fungible token, whatever that even is, of same. Or, of course, you could stuff all your money into a rucksack and drop it off a bridge. We did learn, in fairness, that, and we quote... A portion of the proceeds of this auction will be given to charity, but we did not learn, even from reading the very small print, precisely what this portion was. And we learned that listeners whose New Year's resolutions include a change of careers are being catered to by a research project in Edmonton, at least if the new vocation those listeners have resolved to pursue revolves substantially around wanging tennis balls at coyotes. We learned that the Edmonton Urban Coyote Project, though it sounds like an organisation dedicated to the encouragement of the critters, is in fact the opposite. And we learned that to that end, the EUCP is seeking volunteers to dissuade coyotes from coming to town by chucking sand-filled tennis balls in their direction. We, for one narrator of a whimsical news monologue, are very much looking forward to hearing what our producer comes up with by way of subtly evocative soundtrack. Ah, Jesus. Okay. (sighs) 
was this do? Top work as always, Christy. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks, Andrew. This week also marked a year on from the scenes of extraordinary violence seen on January the 6th last year at the US Capitol. The country still can't make up its mind. A new Axios poll has found that just 55% of Americans believe Joe Biden legitimately won the election in 2020. It was that contested result which led supporters of the former president Donald Trump to break into the Capitol building and wreak carnage in the halls of American democracy. The House committee investigating the violence on the 6th of January 2020 is yet to declare that Trump instigated the violence. But what stain has that day left on American politics? Our U.S. editor in Los Angeles, Chris Lord, sent us this report. You guys have to be in bed by 9 o'clock, you know, and asleep between 9 and 12 or he doesn't show up. The annual Christmas Eve TV show from the White House is supposed to be festive, free of politics. It's when ordinary Americans around the country call in to speak to the president, in this case Joe Biden, as Santa Claus makes his deliveries around the world. Only, this year, it took a different turn. Yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas as well. Uh, Merry Christmas, and let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. I agree. (laughs) Hey, by the way, are you... Let's go, Brandon. Three little words that sent America into a spin just as the year was coming to an end. Joe Biden was apparently oblivious, but the caller, a father from Oregon, had uttered a strange shibboleth of the Trumpian right. It comes from a chant caught on camera and misheard by a reporter at a NASCAR race in October. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the the crowd, let's go Brandon, Brandon, you told me you were going to kind of... Let's go Brandon may be obscure, and as a political slogan, a bit absurd, but behind it is a lot of anger, real anger, at Joe Biden and the media and an election that many ordinary Americans still say the president stole from Donald Trump. A year ago today, that anger boiled over when rioters chanting Trump's name broke into the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. and ran amok. Suzanne Lynch, formerly of the Irish Times, was there and spoke to this programme in the aftermath. I was down in the centre of Washington from about 10am because a protest had been well flagged by Donald Trump and protesters had travelled from right across the country to attend this self-styled Stop the Steal, it was called, rally. Um, Now, Donald Trump came and addressed the supporters around midday. And even by his standards, his language was pretty incendiary. We will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. Not going to let it happen. He was talking about, uh, he was purpose you know, repeating false claims about election interference and rigged elections. Um, the crowd was, was chanting um, anti-media slogans, um, calling for Republicans to fight for Trump. There seemed to be no uh, control by the Capitol Police and the crowd gradually breached the barriers outside the Capitol. Within a half an hour, an hour, they had then entered the Capitol and the Capitol building was on lockdown. More than 700 people have now been charged with participating in the violence last January. But a recent poll found more than half of Republicans say those who got inside the Capitol building were protecting democracy. That dad from Oregon, 
who called into the Biden's Christmas show, has since said his Let's Go Brandon was in jest, though he believes the election was 100% stolen. So how long a shadow have the events of January the 6th cast over American politics? In a cover piece for The Atlantic this week, Barton Gelman argues that what he calls the insurrection last January was only a rehearsal for what's to come. Over the last year, he says, there's been a fine-tuning of the mechanisms by which the election in 2024 might be subverted by Donald Trump. I asked Monocle's political correspondent in the US, Sasha Isenberg, how that could happen. The US relies on towns and cities and counties to run their own elections, for states to tally up the votes, and in the case of the presidency, to report those votes to Washington as part of an electoral college process where where we don't just have a single popular vote. We need to know the winner of every state and have those verified locally. And each of those presents a sort of choke point. You know, when the system works smoothly, as it has in, you know, almost all of our presidential elections, we don't notice any of these things. The counties reporting to the states, that doesn't get covered as news. But in each of those instances, there are people who have to make these things happen. Local election administrators, some of whom are elected officers, some of whom are just bureaucrats. Um, And what the Trump organization did, not ultimately that successfully in 2020, was try to exert pressure on each of those choke points at the local and state level to try to push things in their direction. And what we've seen is that Trump and and his lawyers and supporters have learned from what didn't work in 2020 and are now sort of assiduously trying to place loyalists in positions um, so that if they end up in this similar situation, that they have people who are more pliant to to their demands. And and all of that rests on the basis that Donald Trump is going to get the nomination for 2024 for the Republican Party. Do you see that? Is that a dead cert? I think that if Donald Trump runs, it is very hard right now to imagine how he loses the Republican nomination. I think that the, the mere fact of him running will scare away most, not all, but most of the uh, uh, most formidable contenders within his party. It'll be very difficult for for anybody challenging him to raise enough money, gain enough traction in right wing media to challenge him. Whether Trump decides to run is an open question. He's quite old. Um, there are, you know, still various legal threats that encircle him and his family and his company. And you know, the same stubbornness that will lead him to uh, possibly want a rematch against Joe Biden to settle scores could also lead him not to want to suffer defeat again. We've just entered an election year, the the midterms coming up later in the year. I just wonder your thoughts on where this all stands. We ended 2021 with every media outlet more or less saying that this had been a very poor year for Joe Biden, popularity at an all-time low for the first year of a presidential term. Is that where the public are on all this? And I just wonder your take on where these midterms might leave us. What I think we've seen over the course of the past year is that he had a pretty good first half of 2021. Uh, he passed two large spending bills, an infrastructure bill and a sort of COVID relief bill, rather easily through through Congress. And uh, with the del- you know the delivery of vaccines, things were looking good. And and what's happened, thanks in part to the variants, in part to the low rates of vaccination has been that the U.S. remains mired in in social malaise and the threat of of ongoing shutdowns. And that 
you know, I think if Biden was elected to deliver anything, it was, you know, a more serious approach to to the pandemic. And the results aren't there. I, I think as long as we don't feel like we are on our way out of the pandemic, Biden will will, you know, struggle to keep his approval significantly over 50 percent. Sasha, just finally, you've covered Washington, the White House for many years, not least for Monocle. The U.S. Capitol is a place where journalists like yourself wait to grab the ear of a representative running between one office to the other on, on the way to a major vote. You know, it's a place where politics happens. It's the seat in, of democracy in this country. I wonder just a year on, reflecting on those scenes, which are being endlessly replayed at the moment here on the media, what do you think, how you reflect on what happened in January 6th, 2021? You know, I mean, one of the fictions that I think... Americans tell ourselves to comfort ourselves is that we don't have a, a tradition of political violence. And, and uh, I, I there, there's a lot of evidence in our history to the contrary. Going back to the, the treatment of racial and ethnic minorities, we've obviously had a lot of high profile assassinations of, of our leaders. But one, one place in American history where I think it is true that we do not have a, a, a tradition of violence is, is in you know the realm of, of contested elections. And so I think that there is a certain type of innocence or obliviousness that Americans lived under that it couldn't happen here. And now it has happened here. And I think it shows you know, a certain a vulnerability to our system that many Americans did not think was present. And what we've seen is that the sort of po- partisan polarization of our politics has applied itself to the events of January 6th as well. And so, you know, we have one political party that is largely in a combination of denial and defense of of uh, of the riots that took place there. And that seems to, you know, if we cannot agree that that sort of violent protest against an election result um, is out of the bounds of, of our politics, it's going to be very hard to see what else uh, our two parties can can come to agree on uh, just in terms of sort of the basic work of governance. That was Monaco's political correspondent in the U.S., Sasha Eisenberg, talking to our U.S. editor, Chris Lord. And you heard in that report a clip courtesy of NBC. Staying with our news shows now for our next highlight, there has not been much to enjoy about the COVID-19 necessitated exiling of a lot of previously face-to-face interaction to Zoom, but one very small cohort of people has some minor reason to be grateful for it. This is women still attempting to pursue an education in Afghanistan, with most schooling options for women forbidden by the Taliban, who aren't much keen on education or women. Some are finding a way to continue their studies online. For Monday's edition of the Monocle Daily, Andrew Muller spoke to a female student at the American University of Afghanistan in Kabul, who, understandably enough, wishes to remain anonymous. Andrew began by asking her how different her life is now compared to six months ago. To be honest, every aspect of life has changed in the past few months. For example, before before the Taliban takeover, I used to be a very active individual, an independent woman. I would tour Kabul city with my friends. I would go places, do things, study, participate. But ever since August, uh, for me personally, and I'm assuming for uh, a lot of others, Afghanistan has become sort of like a prison world. Our routines have changed drastically. We used to be very active. And now all we can do all day is just 
be afraid, sit at home. Most of us are jobless. My entire family, actually, we've left work. We're not very productive at all. And there's really not you can do during the day uh, because there's no room for scholarly debate. You could get killed for speaking out. There's no value for education, intelligence, or even logic at all. You can't thrive right now. And it's all about survival. So in any way at all, have you been able to continue the studies you were doing before the Taliban came to town? I have been, yes, uh, but only because I'm a student at the American University of Afghanistan, and we have been able to study online. Ever since 2019, when coronavirus first emerged, we shifted to online, and we've been continuing that uh, throughout this past few months. But I know a lot of people, uh, my cousins, both boys and girls, who haven't even seen school in months. And when I ask them why they don't go to school, they say that 90% of their teachers were female and they don't come to work anymore. So who do they go to school for? But yeah, I have been doing online studies and uh, it's not without difficulty because of electricity and internet connectivity. But uh, I've been trying still and I'm active in my classes. Well, that's something, I guess. But are are there worries that the Taliban may eventually get around to cracking down on such organizations as the American University, which are still trying to function? Yes, uh, I think there is speculation and it's one of my greatest fears because um, right now they're busy with, well, with the winter now and uh, with uh, trying to gain legitimacy from the international community. But once they get their foothold really into this nation, they're going to Like, I'm pretty sure Internet won't be available for long either. And if it is, it will be highly censored. And uh, AUF will definitely be a target of those censorships. You mentioned there the international community, and there would, of course, be every reason for Afghans to have completely given up hoping that the international community was going to be any help to them at this point. But supposing anybody was minded to help Afghanistan as it faces what clearly will be a very tough winter in all sorts of respects, is there anything anybody could do or perhaps anything that anybody could do that the Taliban would allow them to do? I think there's there's a lot of things that the international community uh, could do if they really wanted to. Because, well, if you're looking at international community versus the Taliban, of course, they're much more superior. And um, I, w- one of the things that I wish that they would do, I hope they do, is that they should they shouldn't even consider giving the Taliban legitimacy because they're not doing a very good job at governing. We can see that every day. They're way in over their heads and they shouldn't be given, they shouldn't be legitimized. Another thing that the international community could do is to back up Afghan women, enforce the Taliban to be more lenient. And uh, we need humanitarian assistance now more than ever because winter is here and uh, our people are just dying from the cold and from poverty and from not having shelter. Other things that I can think of for the international community to be doing is that they need to find efficient ways to get the vulnerable Afghans and allies out like they promised. And most importantly, they should, I think that they should release some of our money that have been frozen in the banks because we need to feed our families and the economy is just heading towards this drastic collapse and a release of some of that money would help our economy and help us as a people. That aspect you mentioned of Taliban governance or the lack of it and them really having no idea in how to run a country or indeed much interest in learning how to do it was, of course, a feature of their first stint in power in the 1990s. But 
especially in contrast to the the 20 years uh, of non-Taliban governance you had, how do you see that compare and contrast manifesting in everyday life in Afghanistan? Are there noticeably things which used to work which now don't? It's just the general mood of the, what's different is the general mood of the of the people on the streets or the people outside, and especially for us females. I wasn't there for the previous round of the Taliban regime, so I can't really compare from personal experience. But what I'm seeing now is that we don't feel safe, us women especially. We don't feel safe at all. Like it feels like any minute there could be a knock at the door and things could shift within seconds. There is no sense of normalcy and. Uh, well, Afghanistan wasn't really 100% safe before as well. And that too was because of the Taliban and their regular attacks on the city. But at least before, when we would go around the streets of Kabul, I would feel untouchable and empowered. But now it just feels like you could get snatched at any minute. Um, I feel like we have no human rights right now. And the mood is completely different. Everyone is sad. It, you can see it on their faces. No one is smiling. It's like it's a nationwide depression that has fallen our country. And just finally, for you personally, to the extent that you're able to make any kind of plan for the future, how do you see things panning out? Do you want to leave? Are you trying to figure out how you can get out? I am. I don't plan on staying in Afghanistan. Uh, and that is because I have an SIV case together with my husband and uh, it's been approved and well basically the evacuations in August were intended to get allies out but uh, thousands of SIVs like us still remain and we're left behind. I don't know when it's going to happen when we will be evacuated. We're looking into a year at the, at the rate things are going probably until 2023. We'll still be here. I don't know what's going to happen, but all I know for sure is that we need to leave um, sooner or later one way or the other. We have to because there, for people like us, staying here is like a suicide. If it doesn't come now, it will eventually come. And uh, uh, we just need to leave. Uh, that's all I know. Still to come here on The Curator, the British visual artist Chantal Martin discusses collaborations and her process. We head to Reykjavik to meet Icelandic pianist and composer Edis Evansen. And top Turkish chef Ezra Musl shares a favourite recipe. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Monocle's bumper December-January issue will take you to the far reaches of the globe, from poring over design details in Uzbekistan to petting mountain rescue dogs in Alaska. Alongside our annual soft power survey, get the local view in Libya a decade on from Gaddafi's fall and catch up with the president of Costa Rica at COP26. Elsewhere in the culture pages, we take a dive around Detroit's art scene and see why Lithuania's second city is luring film scouts. All of this plus our regular reviews, travel tips and fashion finds to help you start the new year on the right foot. Head to monocle.com to order your copy of Monocle's December-January issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. You are with the curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. 
For many designers and makers, collaborative projects are a vital way of gaining exposure and developing a broad and exciting practice. But how is it best to approach them? And what other positives can these projects bring? Fresh off the back of her own collaboration with the furniture brand B&B Italia, British visual artist Chantal Martin caught up with Monocle's Thomas Lewis to give us some insights into her process. It's not daunting. It's kind of the opposite. You know, it's like, oh, this is exciting. Where do we meet in the middle? You know, it's like any great collaboration. You know, you're coming from very different places, very different kind of aesthetics or obsessions. But you kind of cross over in the in the middle, and then you can see where the similarities are, where the kind of unique perhaps styles or industries kind of cross over. And especially with you know with this piece as an artist, that is always someone that is. Even just like from a, a uniform or a dress perspective, you know, I'm an artist has always wanted to be comfortable. You know, I'm in sneakers, I'm in comfortable clothes. Sometimes I'm wearing a, a dress shirt that's drawn on, but it's comfortable. And I think, you know, with this piece here as an iconic piece of furniture, it does have that unique quality about it that it is super comfortable to sit on. And, you know, it's also super simple in, in its construction be it like a piece of foam with its mold or, you know, the way that it's constructed, it's not being constructed from a whole bunch of different materials. It's actually kind of the opposite, like less is more. And so, you know, I'm thinking about when there's a project like this, like where do we meet in the middle? And then after that, it's more about the spontaneity and the improvised part of the actual work being created. So as I've thought about these things and now I go to the space it's almost you know it's a live performance I don't call myself a performer but you know I'm performing by default because I like to create work where the audience is present um, because I think firstly on many different levels a it keeps me honest as an artist if I'm drawing live I don't have time to think, I don't have time to plan, I don't have time to hesitate. But more importantly, I don't have time to be anyone else but myself. But also when I invite the audience to see the work being created live, then I'm sharing in the magic. Some artists might think that you lose the magic if you expose the process, where I think the opposite. I feel like if there is also an audience watching the work being created, then we are creating a, a connection, we're creating an experience. And for me as an artist, that's one of the most important reasons why I create. It's to make and to share and to connect and create these experiences. So you have that like, you know, initial layer of contemplating, of making comparisons. And then that second layer of just coming in and doing my thing and drawing and having fun with it and being spontaneous allowing my language to unfold in the way that it wants to unfold in that time, but also inviting the audience into it. For myself, I think that's where my practice is the most me or it's, uh, has its strength is in that invitation, in that openness, in that exposing of the process. And I wonder, Chantal, on that idea of spontaneity and the simplicity therein, I suppose, when you're collaborating with a 
brand. Is it ever difficult to sort of insist on maintaining that element of the process, of the idea? You've collaborated with so many institutions and brands over the years. I just wonder what that looks like when the the magic, I suppose, of how you work and what you do, does that always sit with what a furniture brand or a sneaker brand or the, the New York City Ballet, for instance, wants to achieve in their collaboration with you this meeting in the middle as you put it are there any times that there's any tension there that that's that's difficult for me that's like the magic is like meeting in the middle and creating something new perhaps it would have been difficult if i traced my career back to a point where i would have said yes instead of no so for what i mean by that is that i now have a track record of when i do a project i'm going to do what i want to do you know so um, if I'm doing a mural or if I'm doing a piece, if a brand says, well, we need to see what you're going to do beforehand, or can you add these elements to it? If it's that type of project, I just say it's not for me. And that's okay, you know, because other artists like to draw in those ways. So I'm able to work with the right partners that are a right fit for me or with me and also vice versa, because they're going to want to work with me or vice versa because of what I do. And so, you know, it's, there's been definitely moments in, in the past in my career where, you know, maybe it's with like a really big brand or maybe the compensation is really kind of attractive, but they want me to do something that goes against this idea of just showing up and doing what I want to do. And I've always managed to say no to those projects. And, and what that has done is given me now the freedom as an artist so that when I do work with collaborators, they know that I'm going to show up and do what I do. And uh, and that's like a good place to be, but it, it's taken hard work. But, you know, I have a list where if someone's like Chantel, you know, we love your work, can you do X, Y, Z? And it kind of goes against that framework of where I'm coming from. I have a list of artist friends who love to work in that way, that love to take more of a brief or direction or love to do sketches beforehand, you know, that get approved, et cetera. And then I can always recommend or suggest an alternate um, artist to be the right fit for that collaboration. Because, you know, often I know that I might not be the right fit and that's okay because, you know, there's other artists out there that also could be great for the job. And I wonder, is there something you particularly like about the process of collaborating rather than, say, you know, creating your, your own work and your own pieces? for your own sake, I suppose. What's kind of special about the process of collaboration for you? Well, you know, I've created my own work. I've created thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of my own work. You know, I can do that when I'm sitting at home watching TV or I'm, I can draw all day, make projects and work all day all by myself. But it creates a really interesting legacy. When I look back now at my career and I've worked with neuroscientists and ballet dancers and furniture brands and museums and institutions and philosophers and there's a whole gamut of individuals and institutions and companies that I've worked with and it makes sense because when I look back for all of those collaborations I was really excited to work with them because perhaps they were as obsessed with the thing that they do as I am from my side and I think you know that's where the magic happens because you can create something that is completely new and unexpected which doesn't often happen when you're like doing it by yourself and so a with others it can be more fun it can be you get to create something perhaps that you couldn't do by yourself you get to expose it to a different demographic 
you perhaps get to make a product that you perhaps couldn't do by yourself as well. There's definitely a lot of positives and pros that come out with collaboration and through collaboration. The British visual artist Chantal Martin in conversation with Monocle's Thomas Lewis for this week's edition of Monocle on Design. Staying in the world of design and architecture now as we take a trip to the Midwest of the United States for the latest episode of Tall Stories. In a grassy field in suburban Columbus, Ohio, there stands 109 concrete sculptures shaped like six-foot ears of corn. The plants sprung up as a publicly funded art installation, but what was behind this maze monolith's arrival and how do residents feel about these monuments to agriculture now? Our guide today is Diana Krisman. Driving into a nondescript office park just north of Columbus, the capital of Ohio, you'd be forgiven for thinking you were seeing a mirage. 109 ears of corn, each standing six feet three inches tall, poke up out of a grassy field, their white kernels gleaming in the sun. They're evenly spaced, and at first they seem identical. But upon closer inspection, each one is just slightly different. The kernels arranged in a new pattern, or the cob rotated so it isn't exactly the same as the one before it. All around, wide roads, parking lots, and the bland facades of corporate buildings are typical of American suburban sprawl. It's not an illusion, but an artwork installed on a three-and-a-half-acre lot in the suburb of Dublin, Ohio, in 1994. Designed by the artist Malcolm Cochran, a professor of sculpture at the nearby Ohio State University, the field of corn was meant as an homage to Sam France, an inventor of hybrid corn who farmed at the site between 1935 and 1963. France's corn helped local farmers grow hardier and more productive varieties, a crucial quality for a crop that's long been seen as the backbone of American agriculture. Most people who live in Dublin today, though, are far removed from that agrarian lifestyle, with the fast-growing suburb representing a larger change in American society, from rural to urban. Symbolic of that change, each corn cob here is larger than life, weighing 1,500 pounds. Cochrane made three different molds, each based on a hybrid variety called Corn Belt Dent Corn, and cast the sculptures at a concrete factory in Dalton, Georgia. The corn was shipped to Ohio in four truckloads and dedicated at a ceremony attended by France's widow and children. The work's official name is Field of Corn with Osage Oranges for the row of gnarled trees planted nearby, a variety brought to Ohio by settlers in the 1800s. But it was nicknamed Cornhenge by frustrated locals who weren't happy about what they saw as a waste of taxpayer money. In a way, the site does resemble the ancient Neolithic monument in England, but its designer said he hoped the choice of white concrete as a building material would evoke a different image, rows of crosses in Arlington National Cemetery. He sees the sculpture as a memorial to Ohio's long-forgotten agricultural past, now replaced by office parks and housing developments. Cochran himself said that the process of looking back gives us pause to think about where we are heading, 
all the while maintaining a sense of joy in the present. To drive the point home, he installed five bronze plaques at the site, each of which explains the history of the land, starting with the area's earliest Native American tribes. Despite the artist's intentions, many people who first saw the sculpture missed the point. They criticized the attempt to honor farmers as an empty gesture. After all, it's a field full of inedible food that's mainly visible to office workers who have never farmed a day in their lives. But since the initial controversy, many Ohioans have embraced the sculptures. Field of Corn has been named the best public artwork in central Ohio four times. And on any given day, you can spot a group of tourists taking selfies with the corn. People have even held weddings here. And in the winter, office workers come to the field to play in the snow. And the Dublin Arts Council, which commissioned the piece, stands by it. The council's executive director has said that public art should inspire an emotional response. And Field of Corn has done just that. Diana Grisman for this week's edition of Doll Stories. From corn to chocolate now, as this week on The Entrepreneurs, the show's host, Daniel Bage, spoke to Michaela Ely, who has just taken over as CEO of the London-based chocolate company Prestat, the inventor of the chocolate truffle. The brand was acquired by the Ely family in 2019, Michaela being the fourth generation from the iconic Italian Ely Coffee Company. She spoke to Daniel about relaunching Prestat to celebrate the brand's 120th anniversary this year. So Presta was actually born almost 120 years ago, and it was born from the actual inventor of truffle recipe, which was Antoine Dufour. We're a chocolate manufacturer in the heart of London, very high-end quality truffles. Presta has, as I said, a really long-standing history and the beauty of it that it's been always owned by families. We are the actual fifth different family to have owned, had the agreed the, the honor of owning this company. So my family purchased Presta uh, in 2019 and I had the honor to be invited to join as a board member back in the days by the actual CEO of the, her sister company, which is Domori. In the tumult and disaster moment of the pandemic, we needed a new leadership because prior to the acquisition by Damari, the company was led by Bill and Nick Crean, so the previous owners of Prestat. Once they left, obviously somebody, Damari did a great job in managing the company remotely, but we needed somebody to actually take back the lead in London. And ultimately, I think every single person of my family and all the other collaborators in the sister company know that I have an actor obsession and love for the city of London. I think I had the right profile also because I worked both in strategic consulting and after that, I still have actually my startup in Milan. So I had a bit of entrepreneurship experience. And ultimately, we very cautiously agreed of let's do a test period, six months up in London. And that's the story. I completely fell in love with the people, with the challenges, with the projects, and especially with the history of Prestat. And very happily, I can also say that's actually been given the position of managing director, so CEO, whatever you want to call it. So hopefully it's going to be a few exciting years ahead. Well, that probation period went uh, good. And obviously your family has some faith in you. Yeah, I'm curious about how you felt in, in taking over. Obviously, you talked about your experience, but this being a heritage brand and a new acquisition for a family business. How did that make you feel taking over? Overwhelming. That is definitely the word I would use. 
So of course you are incredibly excited, right? Before you join, you're like, oh my God, there's so many things that we could do, you know, and you have this respect and honor towards a brand that has such long history. I mean, what is it? Like five times my age, you know, like it's seen many, many things, right? And after that hits the fear for sure. So the first uh, few weeks I was up in London, I realized just the breadth of things that had to be done in the company. And I said, I mean, I've had entrepreneurial experience, so tough decision making when you're on your own, but I was in the tech industry, right? Very different challenges from the manufacturing industry. So I guess the hardest thing initially was really the operations side. I mean, we are a hundred people, right? And the operations side, it's really shocking at first. You're like, oh my God, how are we going to get all these orders fulfilled, all these chocolates? And there were also just like the methodology of the work, the managing of the supply chain and everything was all new to me. But ultimately, I love challenges. I love problems. And ultimately, operations turns out I absolutely love it. You can really make improvements in the short term. And that's what I like most about the manufacturing industry and especially food manufacturing, obviously, is that if you really organize yourself properly and you understand that the only limit you have is yourself, you can really see tangible impact in the short run. And hopefully that's what we did in 2021. Absolutely. Obviously, the pandemic and Brexit piled on some of the complications for you. But what were those challenges in the early days for you? And how did you sort of go about learning about the company? Obviously, people that will have worked there will be curious about you. I personally don't like to dwell on age. You come at this with a very fresh view and, and a great vision. But how did you sort of go out to figure out what you needed to do to take the company forward? Well, two key things. On the operation side, I would say by doing. I literally spend half of my day every day in the factory. So it's about learning every single process. You know, I remember the first few weeks, just the metrics of volumes, okay? So some people were talking in containers, some people were talking in recipes, some people were talking in number of truffles. And you have all these numbers around and you really, I couldn't understand what is the capacity of this factory? How much can we do? And obviously you've had people that, oh, this is impossible. We can't do all these volumes versus other more commercial people being like, yeah, we absolutely can't do this. We're not near as close to capacity. So ultimately the first thing I really did was spend a lot of time in production with the head of production and also with all the underlying team to really understand what was the processes and ultimately also what were all the bottlenecks. So that I think was the most important analysis that we did in the first three months, really understanding how can we produce more, better and faster. And that was done on the grounds, on the shop floor, which I absolutely love. I mean, you just breathe chocolate all day. We're a very artisanal company. So a lot of our processes are actually handmade and you really can see how that is really a portrayer of quality because the care that every single employee puts in placing, I don't know, the walnut on top of the truffle is outstanding. On the other more strategic things, I guess what helped was, as you said, the outside view. So I really tried to step back, have this helicopter view of, okay, there's a manufacturing company that has an incredible history, incredible heritage, and this creates a competitive advantage, right? Because ultimately it's not something you can imitate or replicate 120 years of histories or having the legends of the inventor of truffles, the books Roald Dahl wrote about us, the two royal warrants, all these things are really something to be protected, conserved, and leveraged upon. But on the other hand, what comes with a lot of heritage and age, if you want, of a company is also a bit of, this is not how we do things here, attitude and this 
reluctance sometimes of understanding that the world has really changed and that technology can really help make factories more efficient. So the other thing I did is really bring the experience that I had from the startup world where everything is incredibly fast. Every single thing you do, you challenge a hundred times if that is the best way. And if it's not, the day after you start again. And there's zero fear of change and of failure. So ultimately what we really tried to do in the first three to six months where we rewrote the whole five-year strategy for Presta was trying to understand how we could leverage the spirits and the technology from the world of startups to really scale up the company and bring it back to its glory days. That was Michaela Ely, the CEO of Heritage Chocolate brand Prestat, speaking to Monocle's Daniel Bates for this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs. Let's wrap up our culinary highlights now as we turn to the latest installment of Food Neighbourhoods. For this week's show, Esra Muslu of London's new Zahter restaurant shared a delicious aubergine recipe. Hi, I'm Esra Muslu. I'm owner of the Zahter restaurant in Carnaby Street and I would love to talk about one of my favourite dish, aubergine. We call in Turkish karnayarik. I'm eating this dish, I think, age of and still is my favorite. How we do that is for a one person, we use one aubergine. We just peel the zebra side, the skin, and then we make a pocket in the middle. And then we shall fry it with the olive oil. And then we rest our aubergines. And then we get the onion, chop them finely, sweat them inside the olive oil, and then get a mince, again, sweat it with it and then the green peppers, chop them finely, put them inside and then use a fresh tomato, chop them roughly and start cooking them slowly for an hour and then add peppers and salt, make them cook down slowly and then when you open the pockets of your aubergine, stuff them inside and then you're going to put them in the baking tray, put in half of green peppers on top tomato, put them into the oven baking until one hour, 180 degrees. My favorite next to eat, make a rice. And if it's a summer, very warm weather, we usually eat with the tzatziki. That was Esra Muslu of London's Zahter restaurant for this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods. To end the show, we turn to highlight from the latest episode of our sister podcast, Confect Corner, where the team headed to Reykjavik to meet Icelandic pianist and composer Adis Evenson. In this highlight, we visit Greenhouse Studios, the space where the musician finished recording her debut album, Bilur, that has drawn comparisons with other so-called post-classical composers, including Nils Fram and Olafur Arnalds, with its simple but haunting melodies that reflect the cinematic quality of Evensen's awesome surroundings. Here Adis recounts her writing process, the story behind some of the key tracks on the album, and where her musical style is heading next. I grew up in a small town in the north called Blöndos. It's um, a town with a rough population of 800 people. And Valger, who also owns the studio, is from this very same town. I started composing when I was seven, living up in that remote place, due to a quite a traumatic experience that I endured at the time. 
and I started taking lessons a few years prior to that. My family has been just, you know, they love music and all these different genres. So, you know, I always remember music being in the house growing up, that being jazz or classical or Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or anything. My older brother, he's in a, a death metal band, uh, multiple death metal bands. So we're all just great lovers of music. And then throughout my travels, I've just been putting all of my experiences emotionally into music. The way I compose is that it's usually I start with improvisation. So there's, you know, some sort of landscapes or some sort of inspiration that I take. I am hugely inspired by the surroundings where I'm from, up north. So sort of very isolated place and heavy and harsh weather conditions and beautiful sweeping mountains and all these colors and textures. The first um, sort of continuous story was um, a piece called Wandering One and Two on the album. Um, I initially composed the first part when I was living in Australia. I was there for a couple of months and I just found the recording is from what, the first part from 2016. And it's really interesting to hear how the track developed as I was going from a different city and a new experience with the sort of same core essence of the emotion of wandering. You know, no specific destination in mind, but just being on the road and taking everything in as you're going. I was, I think I just finished a very tense casting in New York and I was sort of on my way to another casting, I was sort of, you know, out and about in the city and it was very, very tense. I think it was also summer, so like extremely hot, so I was feeling quite confused. And then all of a sudden this rhythmical point, the time signature of, of circulation just came to me and I just had my little book with me and just wrote down the time signature and as soon as I got home, I just written out this piece and I just felt, okay, this just has to be a string piece and to relate to the hectic emotion of living in New York City and just going to the train and popping up somewhere else. And, and that's also what I wanted to sort of try to capture with that piece is to sort of, it's meant to make you feel a bit thrown off. I really want to broaden my sort of spectrum of composing. Um, at the moment, I'm a bit like old-fashioned in the way of how I write music. So I only got my very first computer a year ago. So just when COVID was starting and I'd never owned a computer before and was just always writing everything down on a piece of paper. So being able to use all the programs and like teaching myself like logic and everything for the first time was like, wow, this is a whole different world. So I'd love to definitely experiment with the electronical side and compose with different instruments as well, um, like woodwinds, for example, maybe work with some poetry. But I do feel actually with writing on a uh, on piece of paper sort of has helped me so much to actually have that overview that it's kind of like a meditative process for me, just writing down one note at a time and sort of figuring out how the, the full harmony is. the piano that I started composing on 
It's the piano that is from my great-grandmother's. It's an upright piano. It's, what, 120 years old. And it's actually built up like a grand piano, so it has, you know, it's a three-stringed upright piano, so it has much more depth than usually. It's been in my parents' place for a few years now. Nobody's been performing on it. So I really want to redo that piano and hopefully when I have my studio set up here in Iceland to be able to have that sort of really, really, really deep texture of the piano is beautiful. It knows me so well, better than myself. That was Icelandic pianist Edis Evensen. To hear more stories like this, listen to Confect Corner, the audio accompaniment to Monocle's sister publication, Confect. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Markus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening. <laughs>